You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're fortunate to have with us here today Dr. John Earl Haynes. John is recently retired from the Manuscript Division at the Library of Congress here in Washington, where he was known to many. And he is one of the really very leading experts on American communism, and particularly on American communism's connection with Soviet espionage. Uh, he's uh, been a prolific uh, scholar in this field. We'll talk about a number of his books. And much of his work has been done in collaboration with Professor Harvey Clare of Emory University, I should mention. Unfortunately, Professor Clare is not here today. Uh, but uh, welcome, John Earl Haynes. Welcome uh, to the Spy Museum. Delightful, delighted to be here. Um, what was your uh, original academic training in? You did not start out as a scholar of, uh, of espionage. but No, I, I moved into that uh, area over a, uh, over a series of years. Originally in graduate school at the University of Minnesota, uh, my emphasis was on labor history, and I intended to become a, really a, a specialist in labor history. But as I was doing my dissertation, which initially started out as a look at the role of AFL and CIO unions uh, in Minnesota politics in the mid-1940s, uh, I came across material uh, that uh, moved my interest in a somewhat different direction. I found that with the merger in 1944 of the state's Democratic Party, which was then the third party in the state, with the Farmer Labor Party, which was then the second most powerful party in the state, uh, that uh, the internal fights inside the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, or the DFL, it was known in Minnesota, still is known as the DFL. Uh, the, the internal fights from 1944 until 1948, when Hubert Humphrey and his allies established their uh, their supremacy in the DFL party, that the, uh, the internal conflict was not so much between the former partisan uh, merger of farmer, late, farmer laborites versus Democrats, but between a, uh, a popular front faction led by secret communists and a, um, a non-communist faction uh, which came under the leadership of Hubert Humphrey. Well, I changed it to a more straightforward political history, 
rather than a labor history. And uh, I found uh, that you know this the story of this uh, factional fight between communists uh, and their allies and anti-communists uh, in the liberal and labor movement at that period uh, was not only an interesting one in Minnesota, but I found similar kinds of fights going on in neighboring states. And again, the the kind of uh, academic and scholarly coverage of this was really, I thought, remarkably light. And I found it interesting, and I also thought, as a young historian, well, if other people aren't going to write about it, I will. Uh, open feel. So I shifted my, uh, my research interest toward the history of communism and anti-communism uh, in domestic politics in the 30s, 40s, and the early 1950s. Uh, my interest in this period and the, my research in this period had nothing to do with espionage. Uh, this I was, was just really ask, yes. at, uh, the, the interest was in domestic politics uh, and the role of communists and anti-communists and their allies uh, in liberal and labor politics in this period. And would it, would it be fair to say that at the time the general feeling was that the Communist Party of the United States uh, really didn't have any particularly important connection with Soviet espionage, that they were sort of largely unrelated, that being a communist didn't necessarily mean you were inclined to be a spy? Well, certainly that was the uh, consensus. And, uh, you know, after I had been in the field for a number of years, uh, I had come to the conclusion that uh, uh, there probably had been occasional sort of odd hook uh, uh, relations between the American Party and Soviet intelligence agencies, uh, and uh, I certainly thought that the uh, Soviet intelligence agencies, both the KGB and the GRU, uh, had used the pool of American communists as sort of a recruiting area. But in terms of a of, of a real organizational relationship between communists, uh, the American communists and the Soviet intelligence, it just struck me as unlikely that it was anything more than episodic. Uh, so how did your views start to change? What, what happened? Because that's not where we are today, not that, where your work is, not where the consensus is today. That's correct. Uh, well, what happened was uh, something which I never expected to happen, which was the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think a lot of us were surprised. Uh, and the opening up of, of archives in Moscow. In the pre-collapse uh, pre period, um, one of the, one, see, one of the frustrations of working on the history of the American Communist Party is that uh, there are limitations in what records are available. You have records uh, that are available from U.S. government sources, uh, Congressional Committee uh, investigations, FBI uh, uh, investigative files that are opened up under FOIA. Uh, That's you the have Freedom of Information Act. Right. And, and you have... Uh, material in private hands uh, that wind up in some archive and uh, memoirs and that kind of thing, and, and trials uh, that also produce some information. But the American Party's own records were, uh, aside from bits and pieces found in these various places, uh, non-existent. Now, among historians who took an interest in the period, well, we kind of you know, so, uh, would occasionally joke that, well, they're in Moscow, um, but of course, we didn't know they were, whether they really were in Moscow, uh, but even if they were in Moscow, we weren't going to see them. Well, then the collapse came. Uh, and in 1992, in the summer of 92, uh, my colleague, Professor Clare, we had already written one book together uh, by this point uh, on the American Party. Uh, he went to Moscow and, because he had heard, among other things, that the, the records of the Communist International were open at uh, one of the newly opened archives. 
Harvey went there in uh, 92, and we had had some discussions ahead of time about what, uh, what we would want to look at. Of course, what we wanted to see was what records they had on the American party. Uh, Harvey had uh, only, I think, about 10 days in Moscow, but he looked there, and the uh, sections of the Comintern's records on uh, the American party were open, and he had several thousand pages microfilmed and brought them back. There wasn't time for him, of course, to read them there. Well, he brought back uh, several thousand pages, and it was really extremely good material. It was uh, because here you have Comintern agents uh, visiting the American party uh, and reporting what they saw, American party officials reporting to Moscow periodically about what the American party was doing, uh, information about uh, uh, Comintern financial subsidies to the American party, all of it uh, very good material. Uh, we then approached Yale University Press, which was starting a book series called Annals of Communism, dealing with new, newly available archival records, and suggested uh, doing a volume on the American Party and the Comintern. Uh, Yale was agreeable, uh, and it was doing this series in partnership with this archive. Well, uh, uh, the head of the archive in Moscow uh, uh, said yes, they'd be happy to cooperate with the project, and they knew Professor Clare had looked at the Comintern records when he was here. But did we know that they also had the American Party records? Well, we didn't know. Uh, so I made then, in January of 93, my first trip to Moscow. Well, it was really for a, a, um, uh, a, a researcher oriented toward archival research, a very exciting trip. Uh, I got to the archive, they put me in a little room, and wheeled in a little cart with some uh, boxes of files on them all of them quite literally covered in dust, and opened up these dusty boxes and pulled out these folders, and they were typical Russian folders of the kind with a, a, a fold-over flap and a, a ribbon that you tied, and they were also dusty. Uh, I mean, this stuff had not been looked at in a very long time. So I you know, undid the ribbon and blew off the dust and looked inside, and Anderson had been correct. These were not reports from the American Party. These were the American Party's own records. Now. What surprised us uh, when we went into this material for the first time in, uh, in the summer of 1993 was we came across um, uh, clear indications that the American Party was in uh, 1936 and 37 uh, already assisting Soviet espionage and assisting them in uh, uh, obviously rather more directly than we had anticipated. We also found in Communist International uh, papers reports from 41, 42, 43, and 44, um, because even though the Comintern dis officially dissolved in 43, uh, some of its institutions were maintained as uh, institutions of the Foreign Department of the, Amer of the Soviet Party, uh, and so their records are continuous. Uh, but what we saw in, in there uh, were messages from, now this tells you how oriented towards espionage history that uh, Harvey and I were at this very early stage. We came across these messages uh, from, uh, and there was no letterhead. We're in Moscow in 1943, uh, there are shortages everywhere. They're they don't, happy to get any paper. Yeah, probably. yeah, they don't have nice uh, letterhead on the paper. But they're, you know, a plain sheet of paper marked secret, uh, and in Russian, of course. Um, uh, uh, from someone named Pavel Fitton, we had no idea who the hell is Pavel Fitton, uh, to Georges Dimitrov, head of the Comintern, uh, saying that uh, he would like uh, Comintern records on the following Americans who he think 
you might have records on. It, it, it was just, it was really a, a you know, a, could you check on, see whether you have anything on these people? And there were a series of these uh, messages. Uh, what surprised us in, uh, uh, at this, when we first saw these messages and why we followed up on it, is that a number of the names we recognized. These were people who had been identified after World War II, uh, either by the FBI or by, in testimony to uh, various congressional committees, uh, particularly by Elizabeth Bentley, who was a defector from Soviet uh, espionage in 1945. These were people whom she or the FBI had identified as having been Soviet agents of Soviet intelligence agencies during World War II, at which was uh, wondering, you know, what what is this doing in the American, uh, you know, in the commandant records, and some of it was in the American early in the American Party records. Um, so we, you know, hastily figured out, uh, tried to figure out who is Fat Pavel Fitton. Well, we soon found out. Uh, he was the head of uh, uh, that case, in this case, the NKVD, you know, the predecessor to the KGB. He was head of foreign intelligence uh, for the NKVD. Well, that uh, was a surprise to us. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, we are research historians. You find something new and interesting, well, you want to follow up on it. Uh, and um, also, there were some names in there that we had, uh, had heard of, but uh, didn't know too much about. We checked on those. Uh, and one of the things that turned up was um, uh, references to an American uh, counterintelligence project called Venona. Now, this is, this is, we're now about 1994-95. When uh, you're doing this work. Right. right. And there had been uh, some information available on this project once we started looking into it. There's nothing, we had never heard of Venona before uh, at this point. But uh, we found that uh, some uh, journalists and, uh, who, uh, who wrote in the area of espionage had said there was a big um, uh, national security agency project, that's our electronic intelligence uh, agency, uh, that dealt with uh, the decoding of Soviet uh, intelligence cables in World War II. So just to be clear, you ran across references in these Soviet-held, or Russian, previously Soviet-held records of the American Party. You ran across references there to Venona? And Not, that's what well, it, we had ran across references that led us to the Venona. Okay. Uh, you know, Harvey's down in Atlanta, I'm in Washington, so I try to make some inquiries of some people I know uh, in the intelligence community about Venona. And was told very clearly, yes, there was this project. Yes, its name was Venona. It was always very successful, yes. And you're never going to learn a thing about it. Go away and stop bothering us. Uh, okay, all right. I, I can take no for an answer. I thought uh, that was going to be it. Um, but then uh, I was sitting at my desk, and I got a phone call. Uh, it was from Senator Daniel Moynihan. So um, you know, I answered the phone, and he says, John, I've just read your book because our first book, The Secret World, had uh, come out. Uh, and I said, well, very good, Senator. Um, and he said, I like it a lot. Well, that, of course, was a big relief. Uh, and then he went and um, explained this, that he had just gotten past uh, a resolution to establish a commission, the commission on the, on the, um, uh, uh, Let's get the name. A commission on government secrecy. It had a somewhat longer title, but uh, um, and what he uh, went on to explain was that 
with the end of the Cold War, of course this is now 1995, the Cold War is over and we won. Uh, he said, um, one of my views is that the regime of security classification and secrecy that we built up in the Cold War uh, was built up for Cold War purposes. And that now that the Cold War is over, we need to rethink things in terms of what can be modified for what are now new American security concerns. But that our, our federal agencies, being federal agencies and typical uh, bureaucracies, their inclination will be not to change anything because uh, the bureaucratic tendency is not to change anything. And uh, so he wanted this commission to look into the question of what should be changed because left to themselves the agencies wouldn't do it. And so he got and established a, a joint executive uh, congressional commission, 12 people, um, uh, four from the House, four from the Senate, four appointed by the President. And Moynihan would be the chairman uh, to look into this question. Well, I found this very interesting and I, I tended to think that Moynihan was right about this, but I was kind of wondering, why is he telling me this? Uh, and then he said, uh, I want the commission to start at the beginning, at the, uh, where the Cold War started, uh, and see how our security regime grew. Uh, and so I want them to look at the early history of the Cold War, and I think your Professor Clare's book is a great place to start. So I'm going to, uh, everyone, member of the commission and the staff are going to get a copy of your book. Well, great. There's half a dozen books sold right there. Uh, then he said, could you and uh, Professor Clare come and testify to the commission? Well, of course, we're totally agreeable with that, uh, about what you found in Moscow. Great. Uh, so we then prepared our testimony, and a week ahead of time, uh, uh, a member of the commission staff, Moynihan's assistant, came over to pick up a copy of our prepared testimony and said, uh, uh, you know, he read it through and said, oh, this is very good. Now he said, uh, in the question period, there's something I want to raise with you. You, know, yeah. uh, you guys have, uh, are presenting here a historical look at what you found in the Moscow archives about the relationship of the Soviet Party and the Communist International with the American Communist Party. Is there anything in here that can tie things more directly to Senator Moynihan's contention that um, we need to change things, that some things are, haven't happened here that should happen? And I thought about it a minute. I said, well, there is this. And I, I told him the story I just told you about. We found these two things related to this Venona project in an open archive in Moscow. And over here, all we get is, don't bother us, go away. Um, uh, so uh, you know, that's kind of incongruous to, uh, to, to be in that position. And he said, perfect. All right, so we made our testimony, and then the question asked period, and Moynihan asked a few questions. And he said, gentlemen, uh, I, under, I understand you found some material related to the Nona project in, in Moscow archives. Could you tell us what you know about that? So, we, again, we went through what we found and the kind of wall we ran into when we tried to find anything over, over here in Washington about that. And, of course, that was, from Moynihan's point of view, a, a perfect example that, that our agencies didn't want to change anything. So he turned uh, to the guy who was sitting, I think, to his left, which was uh, John Deutsch, the head of CIA then, who was a member of the commission. And I said, if I remember right, I'd like to see if the uh, DCI would talk to NSA 
about whether Venona can be opened up after all this time. It's more than 50 years. And Deutsch muttered something. Again, I thought that would be the end of it. Um, two weeks later, I got a call from Moynihan's uh, assistant saying, John, get out to uh, the CIA uh, uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, your name's at the gate to be allowed in. They're having a press conference. NSA has agreed to open up Venona. What was your reaction to that? Well, just, uh, well, gee, <laughs> great. Uh, and now the guys who I'd talked to who gave me the brush off before were now willing to talk. Well, what they said was, uh, well, uh, what happened is this. Um, two things happened. First, we always have had, uh, in the last few years, a group of our uh, cryptanalysts who had worked on Venona. They're mostly retired. Uh, and they're dying off. And they would. this was a big successful project, and they've been pushing internally to open up Venona so they could take a public bow before they're all dead. Uh, then he said, then uh, comes your friend, Senator Moynihan. And then they said, we all hate what he has in mind. Uh, you know, we, we think he's trying to open up things far too much. Uh, and of course, what they're proving was Moynihan's point. They really don't want to change. But we figure we need to toss him a bone. We're going to throw him Venona. It is, after all, 50 years old. Uh, so that was what their reaction to it. So, but from the point of view of Harvey and I, uh, well, we'll be happy with that bullet. We'll be happy to chew on it. So we thought, well, we got in on the ground floor. So um, when they opened up Venona and started releasing the Venona messages, uh, we decided to write about it, and that produced our book, Venona. So did the Venona documents, these American decrypts of Soviet intelligence messages from the 1940s, did they solve any enduring controversies in American history? What did, what, in, in the broad sense, what did we, uh, or, or in the, sorry, with regard to specific cases, rather, what did we learn? Well, let me uh, go, go to the broad issue first okay. and then get in some specific cases. In terms of the broad issue, first, I think it, uh, it brought out that Soviet espionage in the United States in World War II was many times larger than most historians uh, had suspected. The number of Soviet intelligence officers who were operating and the number of sources whom they ran uh, and the volume of material they collected was vastly larger than most historians had suspected, certainly much larger than Harvey or I had, had expected. Further, uh, in our particular area of concern, clearly the American Party's cooperation with Soviet intelligence in this period was not ad hoc or episodic. The American Party was acting as a organizational auxiliary to uh, Soviet intelligence. It was, it was regularly carried out a whole series of intelligence-related tasks for the KGB uh, and the Soviet military intelligence as well. That doesn't mean the main job of the American Party was espionage. It wasn't. But it was one of the areas that they spent a lot of resources on. Uh, so this, this direct organizational relationship between the American Party and Soviet espionage we thought was extremely important his, uh, 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 historical terms. So let me just make sure I understand this. What you're saying is it wasn't just that some Americans who happened to be communists spied for the Soviet Union. It was that the American Communist Party was itself as an organization cooperating with Soviet intelligence. Exactly. There was a direct organizational emphasis by the American Party. And it went from the party's leadership, Earl Browder, uh, all the way down to local leaders uh, who had orders from the party headquarters to cooperate with Soviet uh, intelligence agencies. Uh, and they, did, they ran everything uh, from, they ran safe houses for Soviet agents to meet with their sources. Uh, they recommended people to recruit. 
uh, when the uh, Soviet agency uh, considered uh, recruiting someone, they carried out background checks on the person uh, that the Soviets were interested in to say whether they could be trusted or not trusted or for you know, some reason uh, be unwise. Uh, for instance, if it turns out the uh, uh, someone might be a good source, but it turns out his brother-in-law is an Army intelligence officer, probably not a good idea. You know? So the, all these things need to be looked into. And the American Party did them for Soviet intelligence, which meant the Soviets didn't have to do it. So their officers were freed up to do only the unique things which they, only they could do. Uh, they also provided couriers uh, and message networks uh, for the uh, Soviets. Um, again, freeing Soviet officers for more important tasks. So this is a direct organizational relationship which had not, uh, among historians, had not been regarded to have existed at all. Now, in terms of some specific cases, uh, uh, certainly the most extensive, uh, I think one of the most important things the Venona messages provide is that they show that the, the uh, testimony that Elizabeth Bentley provided where she identified scores and scores of mid-level government officials as having worked for the Soviets in uh, World War II, that her testimony, which a great many historians had regarded as with skepticism or even regarded her as an outright fraud, well, she wasn't an outright fraud. Uh, she, in fact, was accurate in every particular. Uh, this uh, Venona uh, backed her up and corroborated her testimony, which gave, of course, means her testimony can be uh, taken with a great deal more confidence than it could be when it was not supported by this. Venona also um, uh, provided a great deal of detail, uh, separately from what uh, Bentley said, about the espionage, the industrial and scientific network uh, headed by Julius Rosenberg. Now, you know, the Rosenbergs had been arrested and executed for espionage, and, uh, and, and there were people who thought that was a fraud. Uh, I uh, remember as a boy in grade school in the, in the 1970s, sort of learning that, well, we can never be entirely certain, but there's pretty strong suspicion that the Rosenbergs were innocent. Yes. Back uh, that, in that day. Yes. In the uh, popular culture. In the popular culture and in the academic world as well. Now, you know, Harvey and I had thought uh, they were guilty, but uh, 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 you know, we were, I think, a minority uh, at that point. Uh, there had also been indications that Rosenberg, quite aside from his own individual espionage work, that he was part of a larger group uh, of engineers uh, who spied for the Soviets. Well, Venona indicates uh, uh, quite clearly that uh, that was true. Uh, that he was the chief figure of a fairly large industrial uh, scientific um, uh, network. So, go ahead. Uh, that, uh, of, of engineers who were like Julius Rosenberg, uh, young communists who um, he had known them in, in, graduate, in uh, engineering school in New York. And then when World War II got underway, he, uh, these young engineers got jobs for defense industry in the United States, and he recruited them as, uh, to spy for the Soviet Union. And this showed it was, uh, Venona showed it was a quite extensive uh, 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 apparatus. So I, I have to ask, and this will probably make you cringe, so I'll, I'll apologize in advance, but if, if what Venona shows is that during the 40s, at any rate, there had been literally hundreds of American spies for the Soviets, and that this had not been generally understood or appreciated by much of anyone, um, does that tell us anything about uh, people like Senator Joseph McCarthy and the House on American Activities Committee? Just to put it bluntly, was McCarthy right? I think 
uh, let me let me separate the the general question of, of Joseph McCarthy uh, and post-war anti-communism and the uh, congressional committees. Um, in terms of Venona uh, and also what we later would pick up from uh, Alexander Vasiliev's material, shows that the post-World War II concern in the uh, 1940s and early 1950s about the extent of Soviet espionage in, the, in World War II in the earlier period and the uh, concern about the American Communist Party's cooperation with Soviet intelligence, that the American Party was not just a political, a radical political organization, but to a certain extent also an arm of Soviet espionage, uh, was justified. And that uh, post-war anti-communism, uh, domestic post-war anti-communism, was dealing with a real threat and a real national security problem. Uh, one can think sometimes uh, some of the measures were uh, exaggerated or unnecessary, but nonetheless, it was dealing with an honest-to-goodness real problem. Now, um, with Joseph McCarthy in particular, there I think you have to, uh, in, in the public mind, the McCarthyism sort of covers all of this. Well, uh, actually, in terms of what happened in history, it doesn't. Joseph McCarthy really was not a significant uh, factor in any of this until 1951, uh, maybe pushed a little bit in 1950. But um, uh, really, by the time he became active, frankly, it was mostly over. Uh, because by that point, the Truman administration, which actually was one of McCarthy's targets, the Truman administration had in 1947 instituted a government uh, em uh, employment security policy, which was aimed at screening out a government service of people who were either secret members of the Communist Party or had links to uh, communist organizations. Um, and it, it had been uh, the, the Justice Department and the FBI under Truman which had um, uh, used Elizabeth Bentley's material because the FBI uh, uh, regarded Bentley as, as reliable. And everyone she named, uh, uh, most of them were out of government service by 1947, and the last one was finally gotten out, I think, in 49 or 50. Um, and the Justice Department had also, uh, under Truman, begun the uh, Smith Act prosecutions of the American Party itself. And, of course, it was the Truman Administration Justice Department that uh, indicted um, uh, Alger Hiss, uh, formerly the State Department. Who, without going into details, which get very complicated, uh, appears to have been nailed by Venona oh, as yes. well. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a whole theology which yeah, we won't get the, into. Yeah, it's a different, and, as you say, a very complicated question. So, uh, in a sense, uh, McCarthy is coming along in, uh, at, uh, where, where it's mostly over. Um, and what's going on now is he's, he's sort of in, engaged in shooting the wounded. Um, and but one of his targets, you know, one, see, one of his, uh, his targets really is not actual communists and actual Soviet spies. His target is the Truman administration. He was using anti-communism uh, as a partisan bludgeon uh, to whack away at the Truman uh, administration, and uh, both for current political purposes uh, and sort of historical purposes to try to uh, undermine the uh, New Deal legacy of Franklin Roosevelt and carried on by Truman. Uh, in terms of the particular persons that McCarthy named that had not been named by Bentley or identified in Venona or something like that, um, you know, the big names that McCarthy named are not supported by any of the evidence. For instance, he said, 
Secretary, Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, George Marshall uh, was part of the communist conspiracy. There's none iota of evidence. Not true. Yeah, not just totally not true. Uh, same uh, true of, uh, of uh, uh, Secretary of State Atchison, who uh, was another McCarthy target. Uh, there's just been nothing indicating that McCarthy was right about these high officials of the, uh, of the Truman administration. So McCarthy in particular, I don't think, is justified in any way by this evidence. Post-war anti-communism in general, yes, it is, it is supported and justified. So, so let me ask you that then. If your work and, and what's coming out at this time about Venona is tending to support the views of, not McCarthy, but the, the anti-communists and the FBI of the, of the, you know, the, the 40s and 50s, um, how, is, how is this work, how are these revelations received by the rest of the academic community that had been working American political history and studying the Communist Party and studying leftism and studying anti-communism for that matter? What was the reception that you and, and Harvey Clare and, and, and others who were starting to work this field got? Well, initially there was uh, a considerable uh, skepticism. And there still is some skepticism, but initially there was uh, uh, some of the historians who work in this field uh, attempted to explain away uh, the evidence we were finding uh, and accused us of just cherry-picking certain bits of evidence and, and making it into more than it was. But I think as time went on and as the evidence that we presented was piled up uh, and other historians looked at the material as well, um, I think uh, th the academic world began to shift. Uh, I think the, uh, the belief that, uh, uh, let's say, the Rosenbergs were innocent, which was once a minority view, is now uh, you know, the consensus. Everyone believes Joseph, uh, uh, that Julius Rosenberg was guilty. There are some people who will argue about whether Ethel uh, was that active. Uh, but um, uh, the idea that the, there was some uh, Julius Rosenberg's conviction was some huge miscarriage of justice, I think, is no longer uh, widespread. I think uh, with Alger Hiss as well, uh, the consensus that he uh, was innocent has now shifted to a consensus. The evidence is pretty clear. He was guilty. Um, and the idea that the American Communist Party as an institution um, was linked to Soviet espionage, I think, is now very widely accepted. Um, and I think uh, uh, historians who are more sympathetic to the party than, than Harvey and I are, because we are not particularly sympathetic to the party, uh, are left with uh, trying to mount a position that, well, there are various sides to the communist story. There's the good side and there's the bad side. Uh, pre previously, they felt there was only a good side. Well, now they have to admit, well, there's this bad side too, and that w that's a problem. So they want to have a complex and nuanced history of the party. Fine. Uh, I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, what uh, we are still having, I think, some problems with is that they do, do not want to take a similar view of anti-communism. That it was just bad. Yeah. I mean, their view was communism was good, anti-communism was bad. Well, now they want to say communism was good, and eh, well, it was bad too, and there's, it's a complicated story, and we have to look at it with nuance. They want to say anti-communism is still bad. Well. Uh, it's a nuanced story there, too. I mean, there are irresponsible anti-communists like Joseph McCarthy, uh, and they're perfectly responsible anti-communists. Um, and, uh, you know, there was in the 1940s under the Truman administration and, well, into the 50s and 60s, um, you know, an anti-communist consensus. Liberals were anti-communists as well as conservatives. There was liberal anti-communism. 
the, the Americans for Democratic Action, for example, was founded as a liberal anti-communist organization. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the things which uh, revisionist historians in the 70s and 80s tried to do was to write um, liberal anti-communist as nothing more than stalking horses for Joseph McCarthy. They were just as bad. In fact, they're even worse because they pretended to be liberals. Well, I think uh, the, the uh, a more complex view of liberal anti-communism uh, is now uh, far more widespread in the academic world. Real briefly, you mentioned that um, that evidence started to mount up, and and that leads me to to one other sort of interesting character and 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 a, an important book uh, that you co-authored. Um, can you tell us who was Alexander Vasilyev? Alexander Vasilyev. Uh, uh, a Russian, obviously. Uh, he was a, uh, a mid-80s graduate of Moscow State University. He was recruited as a, uh, a college uh, student by the KGB uh, for their foreign intelligence operations because he was very skilled with uh, Western languages. Uh, and uh, he entered the uh, KGB in, uh, I think it was uh, 1988. Um, uh, as Alexander has said, um, uh, his timing wasn't good. He had uh, a very short career in the KGB right, then. Right, because things were starting to fall apart. And by, by the way, Alexander is, is, wants to be very clear about it. Uh, while he said, like, he, like all uh, many uh, young Soviets at that period, really didn't have any particular ideological belief left in communism. He was, he says, in personally, in no way was he a dissident. Uh, he doesn't claim any kind of status like that. He was very proud of Soviet history. He regarded himself as a Soviet patriot. But he said things are, in the late 80s, falling apart. He said uh, also, uh, after he got out of KGB Training Academy, and he was assigned to what he hoped would be the really great, he was assigned to the American desk, which he thought would be really great. However, he arrived at a time just after uh, Aldrich Ames had exposed a couple of members of that department uh, as having been CIA agents. Uh, they were arrested, of course, and executed. Uh, so the whole uh, section was under kind of lockdown for a couple of years, and uh, Alexander said he spent two years doing nothing much more than uh, clipping Western newspapers and filing. So if he says things are falling apart, so he resigned uh, because this is, you know, nothing to do here, uh, and uh, went into journalism, which was what he was trained as, as a, uh, as a, graduate, as a college student, and that was supposed to be his cover, by the way, as a... Uh, as a, um, a KGB officer. Well, he went into Moscow journalism, and of course, this is 1991, 92, things are falling apart. It's a very exciting period uh, for Russian uh, journalism. Uh, but then in the um, early uh, uh, 93 or 94, something like that, uh, he got a call from one of the senior officers he had known in the KGB, now called the SVR, uh, Russian Intelligence Agency. Um, uh, asking him to stop by for a chat. Um, and what uh, the uh, officer told him was that the SVR had decided for a variety of reasons uh, to enter into a publishing agreement with Crown Publishers, an American publisher, to publish a series of books on Soviet-era espionage. And what they would do is marry an internal officer who would have access to the archives with a Western author. Uh, the Western author wouldn't have direct access to the archive. Uh, the internal uh, officer, usually either retired or a serving uh, SVR officer, often a senior one who had been a, in the KGB period, uh, 
um, who would uh, get a particular topic to look at uh, and uh, look at the archives and collect material and provide the Western author with a sanitized version. Uh, he said, we're not going to mislead them, but there are certain things we don't talk about. Uh, so we'll just leave that part out or obfuscate it somehow. Uh, and he said, the trouble is uh, that while there are a number of our senior guys and retired guys who are very enthusiastic about the project, one thing, they're going to get well paid, uh, and this is, this is a difficult economic period uh, for, for Russians, uh, but none of the officers associated with the American section want to have a thing to do with it. They think it's a bad idea. So I thought of my young friend, Alexander. Uh, so would you uh, consider coming back essentially on contract, as a contractor, uh, to uh, do this as a part-time job. Uh, Alexander said, we'd be happy to. So um, uh, he was married up with Alan Weinstein, uh, who is uh, you know, a, a high-profile American historian who wrote the best book on the Alger Hiss case. Uh, and the topic was to be uh, Soviet espionage in the United States in the 30s and 40s. So Alexander collected all kinds of material. He provided a sanitized uh, version of it, which went through a sanitation commission. Uh, and that material was used to write a book which appeared uh, uh, authored by Weinstein and Vasiliev as The Haunted Wood, appeared in, I think, 1998. It was a very good book uh, and had all kinds of interesting material in it. Now, those who wanted to be skeptical of it said, well, uh, uh, we know uh, Weinstein didn't have direct access to the archive, and how do we know this material is uh, uh, correct? Yeah. Right? And we can't even look at the sanitized material, much less the original stuff. But um, uh, then, a few years later, and I won't go into the complications of it, but uh, uh, from a lawsuit in England, Alexander had meanwhile moved to uh, London. He's now a British subject. Uh, he moved to London in 1995 or 1995, I think. Uh, there was a lawsuit there uh, involving the Haunted Wood uh, in which he entered into the court records uh, a couple pages of material, all in handwritten Russian, his own handwriting, which he thought supported some one of the points that was being argued about. Well, someone uh, uh, gave a copy of that to me, and I can't read handwritten Russian, uh, but I have some friends who do. And they translated it for me, and it had some extremely interesting information um, that had not been in the haunted wood, uh, which puzzled me because you know, uh, Weinstein's an you know, excellent first-rate historian, and I thought, if I'd seen that, I'd sure as hell put it in. Um, so it was a bit of a puzzle to me uh, as to why it hadn't been used. Um, but nonetheless, uh, interesting material, and I actually put it on my website, both in the original Russian uh, and a uh, translation of it. And out of the blue uh, came a uh, email from Alexander in London saying he'd been surfing the web and came across, he said, popped up on my screen, you know, my own handwriting, which he said surprised me. Then he recognized what it was and looked at the translation. Uh, and he said, it's a good translation, but a couple of the uh, names aren't uh, spelled correctly. Uh, probably your translator couldn't read my handwriting quite, quite accurately. But of course, you know, I wrote it, so I know what the actual letters are. And so he corrected the spelling a couple of names. Good. So of course I wrote back and appreciated that and said, uh, could he explain what is this material and is there more of it? Well then he writes back this explanation uh, and he says, uh, 
Now, this was not in the sanitized material that was given to, uh, to Alan. Uh, this is from my original notes. And he explained there are seven notebooks. Turns out there are 1,115 pages of these very detailed notes he made as he went through the archives, uh, uh, where he actually, uh, some, some pages are just straight, he just, he just transcribed everything on a page. Other times he has a summary of something he read. And he has, you know, on the left-hand side, he actually has the file number and the page number uh, uh, where this, uh, what's in the middle of the page is uh, the summary or the transcription. And on the right margin, he has some of his own comments he's making to himself as he is recording this stuff. Uh, and he says, of course, only part of this went into the sanitized version. And so I have these original notebooks with me. Did I know any American historians? He says, I think there's more material there for another book. Uh, and I'm now willing to make the original material available. Do you know any American historians who would be interested in, in uh, doing this? Well, Harvey and I are on the next plane to London. Uh, uh, and uh, so this, this is, ex uh, you know, this is until the KGB actually opens up its archives, this is the closest we're ever going to get uh, to the original material. And that led to the 2010 book, Spies, The Rise yeah. and Fall of the KGB in America, which you and Harvey Clare and Alexander Vassiliev did together. That's right. Well, we could, we could talk forever. This has been fascinating. Uh, it's been really remarkable uh, work and, uh, that you've done over your career, and, and I'm, I'm really quite jealous of you being able to you know, sort of be on, be on the cutting edge of such important uh, historical work uh, dealing with espionage and intelligence. So John Earl Haynes, thank you so much for joining us here at the International Spy Museum. I was very pleased to be here, Mark. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey that's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.